who would have ever predicted 2020? A friend of mine suggested that in a couple of weeks when we turn the clocks ahead, we should turn them ahead about three months to get out of this gosh awful year. Uh, it's been a tough time, but as, as this technology shows, it's also a creative time. And we are being pushed into the future, kicking and screaming, and God knows that he'll bring us out on the other side um, in a good position. So I thank you for the invitation. Procedurally, I'd like to go through the first section. The first section is going to be about um, what's happening in our culture sociologically. And then we'll stop for a few questions of clarification. Chris is going to be uh, monitoring the, the chat box. And then the second uh, major section, I want to make some suggestions on things we might do in this time for the cause of the gospel, uh, creative things, perhaps, unusual things, perhaps, and they, those come from First Peter. So we'll, we'll get into it with the, this overarching belief of mine, I'm speaking in all of this just from myself, you know, th this is a confusing time. The, a man named Ray Kurzweil said that in the 21st century, we will experience the equivalent of 20,000 years of change. One century, the 21st century, will be equivalent of 20 centuries of change. Uh, another observer has noted that the change is so fast we can't keep up with it. We're overwhelmed by it, and I certainly am. So there's a lot of confusing stuff going on all around us, but actually the basics are very, very clear. And in the first section, I wanna demonstrate sociologically that what's going on around us is easily explained. And in the second half, to show how the clarity of God's word can help us, help our congregations to uh, flourish in these, this time. Some years ago, I was preaching in North Carolina and the topic of my sermon was the same topic we have today. It's a great time to be the church. Afterwards, during the Bible class hour, an older woman asked me, how can you say that? Well, I understand where she was coming from. You know, one of the things about preaching around Sunday after Sunday is you walk into a congregation and, and you can pretty much sniff what's going on, if it's healthy and flourishing or, or if it's struggling. This congregation had a fine pastor and fine people, but you could tell that they were, they were feeling plateaued. So she says to me, how can you say it's a great time to be the church? And think about that in your own context. Let me, let me put a few questions to you about where you're at. Has church attendance declined? Has church membership dropped? Do you know congregations that have closed? About a month ago, I had a discussion with our gift officers at the seminary, and they're, they're feeling conscience torn because some congregations close and send the, the proceeds of the church sale to the seminary. Well, that, that's well and good, but we don't want our churches to close. 
has public public morality changed in America? And then coming from where I've lived the last 15 years, have seminary enrollments declined? And of course, the answer is yes. For most of us, the answers to those questions are, are, are yes. So how did I answer that lady? I said, it's a matter of faith. It's a great time to be the church is a statement of faith. Do you and I truly believe that Jesus rose again and is alive? Do we truly believe that he is the Lord of the church now? And after Easter, he didn't go off into retirement or take a vacation. And do we truly believe what we say in the creed every week that he is going to come again? key principle for us in these times of strangeness in church life is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. Admittedly, the things of sight are not good for the institutional church. When I was a kid growing up, I mean only half a mile away from Lois, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod had 2.7 members, 2.7 million members. Well, since 1970, that's been in steady decline and today we're under 2 million. When we were growing up, American public morality was pretty much based on the 10 commandments. Not to say that everybody observed it, but that was the accepted public morality. Those are facts, and those are the facts of the, the decline in America and in the institutional church that we can see. But we walk by faith, not by sight. Okay? Now, the things of sight are important. I mean, sight is pretty important when you're driving to work. Sight is pretty important when you're doing your taxes. Sight is important, but when it comes to Christian life and our congregational life together, we do look at statistics. We do look at trends. But ultimately, what motivates us in our personal life and in our congregational life together has to be faith. If it's not, then we're what Parker Palmer, for one, says is functional atheism. And there are a number of commentators. Parker Palmer is one, Oz Guinness is another, who says a lot of Christians today and Christian leaders are functional atheists. So my answer to that question, you know, how can you say it's a great time to be the church is, it's a statement of faith. And faith, more than anything, has to animate us, our hearts, our hopes, our congregations are, are to be locked in on Jesus, alive, present, and guiding us through these new and different times. So let me share what's happening uh, in America. A lot of us, at least those of us who have gray hairs, and I suspect that's the majority of our audience who's giving up Saturday morning for this webinar, and man, thanks to Northern Illinois for doing this. 
a lot of us grew up in Christian America. In Christian America, Christian, quote unquote, America, everybody knew you're supposed to go to church on Sunday morning. Now, whether they went or not, that's another question. In Christian America, everyone pretty much knew the Bible stories and the main characters of the Bible. Now, whether they read the Bible or not, that's another question. In Christian America, everybody knew what the main message was about Jesus. Whether they believed it or not, another question. In Christian America, public morality was Judeo-Christian. And again, there were people who deviated from that in ample number, but the generally accepted public morality was Judeo-Christian. That's gone. Decades ago, for a number of reasons, the message of the church and the what we experienced in public society complemented one another. Now, I worked my way through school eight summers delivering milk. And my dad was a milkman. It's okay, he married my mom. Um, the Meyer side of the family was, was much involved with milk. And I see, in a, as a tribute to that, President Buss has put on cows. You know, thank you for that visual for my presentation. So at any rate, you know, milk is homogenized. Well, in Christian America, the things of public life and the things of the church were homogenized. So for me as a kid, my congregation was the same as the kingdom of God. Martin Luther was similar to, very similar to Jesus. It all, it all fit together. Well, Christian America is gone. I went, as Lois said, and she did too, to Bloom Township High School, okay? We went from little St. Paul's Lutheran School, I say little, they had about 180 students, to Big Bloom with almost 4,000 kids, okay? There were differences. I remember discussions in biology about evolution, but uh, basically those two cultures complemented one another, the church and the big public high school, that, that's all gone. And it's not coming back, at least not in our lifetimes. And a lot of older people, those of us with gray hairs, grieve what has been lost in the life of the church and in American public life. Christian America is gone. And that, that's one thing that's happened sociologically and we experience it all. There are two other things that have gone on in these last decades. And again, these, these are not things that Dale has discovered on his own. I do a lot of reading and I've stumbled onto this. So you, you may not in the next 45 minutes hear one original thought from me. But one of the things that's gone on in our, in our broader American society is the rise of hyper-individualism. Martin Luther did a lot to uh, uh, liberate individuals from the dominance of the church. No complaint here. And those of us who follow in Luther's steps like to talk about the priesthood of all believers. Well, Western culture is individualistic. American society is individualism on steroids. Shame on you 
for disagreeing with me. I have my opinion, you have your opinion. Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? And don't you dare tell me that I'm supposed to wear a mask. I'll do whatever I darn well want to do, okay? How are we supposed to deal with these blockheads? And that's what we've got in, in America, individualism on steroids. And now when, an in, when a person is focused on themselves, and the Latin phrase here, pastors, is incurvatus in se. We're basically dealing with a first commandment issue, man or woman turned in on themselves. Well, when you've turned in on yourself and you're the measure of all things, you don't need God. You don't need the church. You don't need a congregation. And you certainly don't need other people. The second sociological thing that's gone on as, as we're, we've grown out of Christian America is the growth of big government highly centralized government. When President Eisenhower was presiding in Washington, it was a far different federal government, far less centralized, far less in control than it is today. There's an interesting place where this is demonstrated. The Declaration of Independence says that the creator has endowed us with certain inalienable rights life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And a footnote is that happiness there doesn't mean what happiness means today. There was a different understanding of that in the 18th century, okay? But the point is that the Declaration of Independence says that God gave us these rights and other rights. The Ninth Amendment talks about that, okay? Where do people look for rights today? You know, follow the, the presidential election and all the talk, use a polite word that's going on with that. You know, we kind of have the idea that the government gives us our basic rights. Well, that's not American. At least that's not the American founding vision of rights. One commentator has said that government today is stepping in for Yahweh. Yahweh being the Hebrew name for God, the ineffable name. Big government stepping in for Yahweh. So what these two trends have done, and remember the two trends are hyper-individualism and big centralized government. What they have done is to weaken congregations. There's a reason why congregations are often struggling, even to hold their own. I mean, I've talked to pastors who have healthy, good congregations, and Northern Illinois has many of them as well, and, and they're struggling to hold their own. Well, the, the, the trends in, in, in our country ex explain this. Here's a quotation from a... a social observer named Yuval Levin, Yuval Levin, and somehow I suspect that he's not LCMS. Individualism tends to weaken mediating power centers. And we'll talk about mediating power centers 
as I go on. Individualism tends to weaken mediating power centers that stand between the individual and the nation as a whole, from families to local communities, including local governments and religious institutions. That's your church. A hyper-individualist culture is likely to be governed by a hyper-centralized government, and each is likely to exacerbate the worst inclinations of the other. In other words, hyper-individualism and our looking to the government to fix all our problems is why we're so dysfunctional. Hyper-individualists want the government to fix everything, but we're not gonna accept it when the government does something that goes against our hyper-individualism. It's dysfunctional, okay? And, it's, and it, it's very clear sociologically, set aside the word of God for a minute, why congregations and other institutions are struggling. We're caught in the middle of that. Remember now, these are the things of sight, not of faith. There's a quotation from Peggy Noonan, and I have often cited this quotation. It was in her editorial in the Wall Street Journal a couple years ago, and I think it describes where we're at very well. She had just reread a book by Dean Acheson. Acheson was the Secretary of State under President Truman, and Acheson, in his book, reflected on how everything had changed after World War II. And here's Nuna's quotation. Everyone's in the dark looking for the switch. I mean, don't we all know that experience? And when you get older, you're in the dark looking for the switch because you're going to another room in your house. When you're in the middle of history, the meaning of things is usually unclear. In real time, most things are obscure. And you and I and the institutional church are now in real time trying to figure out what's going on in new post-Christendom America. She quotes Atchison, only slowly did it dawn upon us that the whole world structure and order that we had inherited from the 19th century was gone. It's an apt description of where America is today, trying to find its way forward. But remember that sight, and you and I live by faith. We know where the light is. John chapter nine, verse four, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And you and I are people who have been brought into the light. First Peter two, verse nine and 10, God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We forget that. We act like functional atheists, and I include myself in this as well. Grief is when you lose someone or something that is precious to you. We all know about grief. And yes, indeed, we, we do grieve the things that have been lost in institutional church life as we knew it in past decades. Yes, we grieve what has been lost in American life, but we should not grieve as people who have no hope because our hope is in the living Lord who assures us that he is present. We don't know his presence by sight. 
we trust it by faith, which he has planted into us. So I say, it's a great time to be the church. That's a statement of faith. You gotta believe, you just gotta believe it. So I am going to uh, transition into some learnings from First Peter that I think may be helpful, at least they've been eye-openers to me. Uh, and that'll be the second part. But what I would do now, Chris, is ask if there are any questions of clarification from the people who are hopefully still awake in the audience. And, and this is not for discussion time. We don't have the time for discussion. Right. Don't tell me what you think. Tell me where I haven't been clear. Uh, so, so, Dr. Meyer, at this point in the, uh, in the chat, uh, there, there are no, uh, no points asking for any clarification. I think people are with you. Are they still there? Are yeah, they still I, there? I think they're, they're, our attendance is still the same, so I think you're, you're good. Okay, this, this reminds me of, of, of times when I've spoken in public, especially at Lutheran Hour rallies. And, and, and the staging was such that you'd be on the stage and they had the lights on you, okay, the bright lights, especially if it's a theater, not, not in a church, because church is always kind of dark. But, but in, a, in a theater setting, they have the bright lights on. You cannot see. It's all black. You don't know if they're there or not. And that, I mean, that is the weirdest public speaking thing. So, okay, so I'll keep... The only comment we've got, Dr. Meyer, is that you have been very clear. So the folks are with you. Okay, Lois, you put that in the family archive. <laughs> All right. Um, let's get into some suggestions from Peter. There, there's a lot to be said, and this is not exhaustive what I'm gonna offer. This is not a silver bullet, you know? If, if I were a pastor again, and I always bristle when, when somebody says that because I've, my thought is just shut up and become a pastor. Don't pontificate, don't be a straw boss. But if I were in the ministry again, as, as you are, and I'm involved somewhat in our, in our local congregation down here in Collinsville, there, there's no silver bullet answer. A classmate of mine had, a, had a, a great church in Texas, but he said four out of the five things that they tried didn't work. It was the fifth thing that they hit upon that really, really uh, helped them. But what I'm gonna share is, is seven, I think, insights that we can use in our preaching and teaching and, and mutual conversation as, as members of the church. So these are not just, these are not programmatic as much as they are, are from, from the word. Let me, let me set the stage for the, for the first suggestion by saying this. As you know, I grew up in Chicago Heights, which is 211 streets south. My wife, Diane, grew up in Roseland. She's actually a real Chicagoan. And then later in her grade school years, they moved out to Villa Park. She attended Willowbrook, then went to ISU, 
and just happened to get a teaching job at Bloom High School. I came back from Vicarage, that was 1971, 72. Came back from Vicarage in 1972. She was teaching, teaching my sister, who I believe is on this call. And uh, I met her and, and, and the rest is history. Diana's had seven happy years of marriage. Out of 47, that's not a good comment about me, but she's a wonderful woman. So this summer, we moved back home to Collinsville. We've had this home for almost 40 years. And while I was president, we lived on campus. But now we have moved back to Collinsville. And job number one is the commentary for Concordia on First Peter. So I'm, 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 I'm really enjoying this. And I believe that First Peter, it's a short epistle, only 105 verses but it speaks volumes to the changes we're experiencing in society. So I'm gonna get into the seven suggestions. First of all, an overarching question about your congregation and mine. When people come to your congregation, do they get a clear impression that your church is qualitatively different from anything else that they experience during the week? Why should they come to your church? What compels them to worship and socialize with you since they can get fellowship other places in their community? And the declining numbers show us that they are doing that. As we come out of COVID, this is gonna be an important question, whatever coming out means. Why do I need, why should I need to worship and socialize in person with you. After all, I can get the word of God elsewhere. This is a huge question. So in other words, what's different? Wow, the values in this church are different than others I experienced during the week. Wow, the people here are really different. Hmm. When I go to this congregation, worship, Bible study, I learn things that help me during life. And thank God about this church, I don't leave feeling condemned. In other words, do your people know that this congregation, St. Paul's, St. John's, Hope, whatever, is qualitatively different than any other association they have during the week. That's a challenge. One of the reasons why I ask this question comes from a scholar named John Barkley. And he wrote a big book about St. Paul. It's called Paul and the Gift. 600 pages. And it's a great book to read, although frankly, I don't think Many of us are going to do that. We don't have the time. But Barclay made the point that St. Paul founded congregations to be different than the value systems that people experienced in Corinth, Antioch, where, wherever else he founded congregations. And it's just common sense, too. If people are going to feel compelled to come to your church and mine, there's got to be something far different from the rest of their experiences during the week. 
So with that as an overarching question, let me get into the seven, seven learnings from First Peter. And again, there are more. These are just the seven I've, I've, I've identified for our talk. Think of your congregation as a mediating institution, quote unquote. Think of your congregation as a mediating institution. So here I am sitting in suburban Collinsville. I know Chicagoland people think that Southern Illinois starts at Kankakee, but we're, we're a lot farther away than that. But across the street from my old 90-year-old home is the American Legion. Veterans come to the American Legion to socialize, to enjoy one another's company. They come to the Legion to uh, share their experiences and to talk about, you know, what's going on in your life, what's going on in my life, what's going on in our community, what's going on in the nation. And of course, they also come to the Legion to have beer. Well, the Legion is a mediating institution. That is, it's a place in between, in between an individual with his or her personal life and the broader society that's out there. The quotation I had from Levin called it mediating power centers. A mediating institution is in between my personal life and the impersonal world out there. It's where individuals come to be welcomed, to share social times, exchange thoughts, and form a common outlook on life. Other mediating institutions include country clubs, fitness centers, uh, senior citizen centers, civic clubs, local governments, the nuclear family, and your congregation. Your congregation is a mediating center. They come to be welcomed, to experience something that they won't experience other places in, in, in life. Now we learn at the seminary and we learn in our churches that the, the main reason for gathering together as a congregation is word and sacrament. Okay, that's not changed. That's, that's the heart of who we are as Christians. God coming to us through his word. You know, the spoken word, the red word, the, the physical word in the sacraments. But what's different in the 21st century than the 20th century is that the congregation now has an opportunity, I would say it's a duty, to teach people how to navigate out there in the impersonal, highly government-dominated life that we live. You didn't have that in the 20th century when the two, remember, were compatible with one another, public and church life. We have the, the opportunity and it's a mission opportunity. And we also have, I think, the duty to show individuals who come to our congregations how to be loved, but also how to go out as God's loved people into the society. The second learning that I would bring up from Peter is to let Jesus out of the museum. Let Jesus out of the museum. Let me present it this way. Imagine going to church and, um, oh, Pastor Buss, let's imagine he was the pastor. And I've been to his church in Belvedere a number of times, so I know that this is not true. I'm just 
making up a story about you, Alan, that just isn't true. But let, let's say you go there and Pastor Bus comes out and says, welcome to our church. I'm so glad you came. We've got a lot of interesting old stuff in our church. Most of it is from the first century. Although it's October and we fast forward to the to the 16th century, we're so glad you have come to St. Mattress Lutheran Church. And after our museum time is over, I invite you to join us for a cup of coffee because honestly, you're gonna need it. Hey, the church is not a museum, all right? And you and I, lay people, pastors, teachers, we're not the curators of a museum. Jesus is as alive and present today as he was when he was visibly present in the first century. And not only that, he is coming back. Now, when you look at, at uh, First Peter, he's really locked in on what Jesus did. His, his, his life and his passion and his resurrection, okay? There are three great Christological passages in Peter, and they're really zero in on what Jesus did first century. But Peter's real zeal is on the fact that he's going to come back again. Oh, chapter 1, verse 13, set your hopes on the grace that comes to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not the revelation in the Bible. That's his coming back when we'll see him face to face. When, when, when our faith then is, is turned into sight. So honestly, I mean, on a Sunday morning, and, I, and I'm indicting myself here too as a pastor. On Sunday mornings, how often are we oriented toward his coming again? We say the creed, maybe around ascension time, of course, who has ascension services anymore? We say he's coming back again. At a funeral, we might. But on a daily, on a Sunday, Sunday basis, you don't hear it. So one of the things about Peter is let Jesus out of the museum. He's alive now, and he's going to be coming back quickly. The next thing that I learned from Peter is that, um, this is going to sound heretical, but put the Bible on the shelf. You got my bookshelves back here? Put the Bible on the shelf. Here's where I'm coming from, and it's not heretical. In the first century Roman Empire, scholars have estimated that only 10 to 15% could read, were literate. Only 10 to 15% of people in first century Roman Empire were literate. How did they get the faith? How did they learn about Jesus? Word of mouth. People, for example, for example, um, would go to synagogue. I think a lot of Peter's recipients were members of the synagogue in Asia Minor. And when people came back from Pentecost, 
they said, we've, we've heard that the Messiah has actually come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. In Acts chapter 23, Christians are called the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, there weren't evangelism folders. You know, there wasn't radio, the Lutheran hour. How did they hear about this? It was on people's, the word was on people's lips because it was in their heart. Romans 10, 17 is literal. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. So imagine now two scenarios. In the first scenario, you have a church member, you, me, who, who has taken the word into our head, into our memory, and into our heart. And now we're at work, virtually at work, in person at work, whatever. We're at work, and, and, and somebody brings up a question about faith and church, whatever it is. You know, one of those opportunities where you think, yeah, this, this might be my opportunity, Okay. So you, you pull out those passages, so that knowledge of what, whatever that's in your head and heart, and you give an account for your faith. Why do I go to church? Well, let me tell you. Scenario number two. You think of the Bible only as a bound book, you know, on the shelf. We all have those books behind us on the shelf. And ever since the printing press, we have drifted toward thinking of the Bible as a bound book, okay? So when an opportunity comes up when somebody says, you know, why, why do you go to church? What's, what's the real reason? Or why do, why do Christians believe this, that, or whatever? You know, you might have to say, well, I'm going to have to go research that. I'm going to have to get the book off the shelf and find out what's going on. Or I might have to call the pastor up and say, pastor, would you research this in all the volumes you have behind you on the shelf? Now, which of those two, friends, is going to be the more effective witness? I pull my gray hairs out when people go to 1 Peter and talk about vocal witnessing, let me tell you, there are only two passages in Peter that talk about vocal witnessing. One is chapter 2, verse 9, which I've, I've cited before. And the other one is 3.15. Always be ready to give an account for the hope that it is in you, but do it with gentleness and meekness. Those are the only two passages in 105 verses that talk explicitly about witness. The great brunt of what Peter talks about from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter, well, really, the end of chapter 4, is being there, being there with people, a ministry of presence that creates the opportunity to share your faith. So I'm getting into the preaching mode. Bear with me. You know, why did the church spread the way it did? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one was that the Bible was not a bound book. They didn't have Bibles. If you said, show me a Bible, they couldn't have done it. You know, what are you talking about? They had the Old Testament. But the leaders of the church, like the people who are on this webinar, had, the, had that word in their heads and in their hearts the word of faith, which we share. The next, next learning is that you in the Bible is plural. I've got a, a son-in-law from Texas, and he explains to me that y'all is what you say to a person. So, Chris, y'all there? Okay. When you're talking to a crowd, more, more than one person, 
It's all y'all, okay? Germans would say, hallo zusammen, okay? It's all y'all, okay? Well, most of the time, when you come across you in the Bible, Y-O-U, it's all y'all. Look at how our Western culture has deceived us. We're individualists, remember? And so when individualists sit in church on Sunday morning, or when they read the Bible, and we should, we should take the book down and read and study it, when we come across Y-O-U, either in reading or in hearing, we automatically think as an individual. Uh-uh-uh, that's not what it's saying. It's all y'all, the body of Christ, our congregation as a whole. This individualism that we have in Western culture and hyper-individualism in America is subtly distorting the word of God. And you got to believe the devil is making hay on it. Got to believe that. Uh, he doesn't need to go to brothels. He doesn't need to go into saloons. He comes to the church and he uses these cultural conditionings that we have to undermine it. Okay, I'm going to keep going because I am mindful of the time. What do I have left here? The next one is don't be holier than thou. Holiness is a big theme in Peter. First, uh, First Peter 1.16, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We're going to be judged when Jesus comes back for how we have lived. You are responsible for your own salvation, okay? That's in the Bible, and I don't have the time to get into it. We're going to be judged, even if we're Christian, for how we have lived. You are responsible for your salvation. Now, we, we, we can't do that, and that's why Jesus' death in our place and faith in him as the only Savior that we have is so important. But that does not absolve us from trying to live holy lives by the grace that he gives us. But let's not be holier than thou. Okay. Again, in that passage that I cited, 1 Peter 3.15, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Remember that our sorry souls have had to be saved. So let's not pontificate to other people about how they're living. Be with them, be present, be engaged. But always remember what a friend of mine told me. Don't tell me what a friend I have in Jesus until I see what a friend I have in you. Let's see. The next one that I have from first Peter is, does Jesus died for your sins really communicate? Here's another place where Western culture uh, deceives us. Western culture thinks in terms traditionally that of right and wrong, of guilt and innocence in our context as Christians of sin and forgiveness. And that's how we understand the gospel amongst us. And I'm not questioning that. The justification of the sinner by grace through faith 
in Christ, okay? But most of the world doesn't understand life in terms of right and wrong. <clears throat> the story is told about a, 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 a hyped up evangelical Christian who got into a taxi in New York. The taxi was driven by a, a, a Middle Easterner. <clears throat> and this evangelical Christian started to witness Jesus died for your sins. It made no sense to the taxi driver. No sense to the taxi driver because he came from a shame and culture society, shame, uh, shame and honor society. So, so we have right and wrong, uh, guilt and innocence. That's where we've been bred. Shame and honor society. There are also uh, people who see the world through fear and power. Okay? So one of the things we need to do is find out what worldview does this person have? And by the, by the way, shame and honor is becoming far more prevalent in America today, too, for, for a number of reasons. Now, does this set aside the forgiveness of sins? Absolutely not. If I honor God, I will obey God. When I dishonor God, I sin. And so forgiveness is needed. So forgiveness is still the article upon which the church stands or falls. But uh, Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman. She was shamed. Peter was writing to people who were shamed in their society. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, the honor is to you who believe. The honor is to you who believe. The last thing that I have, and I'm mindful of the time here, Chris, the dominator, is to interpret theology, uh, back up, interpret reality theologically. Interpret reality theologically. You know, it's not just that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And what does that mean for us during the week? And I'll give you just a quick example. And I could go on till the cows come home. And fortunately, Alan still has the cows up there. They're not coming home yet. Um, Sunday, the gospel, Sunday's gospel is where Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's, okay? He's not talking about church and state. There was no church and state separation in first century Palestine or the Roman Empire. Now, we might be able to say, you know, this is interesting, render unto Caesar, da, 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 but it's not proving that church and state is the way a government should operate. Jesus is not endorsing the First Amendment. Think about it, and I owe this to Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs in his Concordia commentary. If you take those two sentences at face value, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, that means that there are some things that don't belong to God. They belong to the government. Well, that's hooey. Everything belongs to God. And you can, you can get into, you can read what, what Gibbs wrote, but basically our total lives are under the lordship of Jesus. And when you go into the booth, if I were preaching Sunday, when you go into the booth to vote, you don't distance, separate, have a wall of separation between the church and your opinion as a voter. Let me wrap this up because the dominator is soon going to. I got me. questions for you, Dr. Meyer. All right. Let me, let me close with three quick quotations. And quick. The first is from a, a relatively new book by George Will, the commentator. 
He says, it is wise to worry about the political consequences of what Matthew Arnold called the melancholy, long, withdrawing roar of faith leaving the culture. That's happening. And leaving the culture susceptible to feverish quests for redemption through political action. It's exactly what we're saying. You know, this is not brain surgery. Next quotation. This is from our, our friend again, Yuval Levin. The ultimate soul-forming institutions in a free society are frequently religious institutions. Your congregation. Not quite so much the seminary, not quite so much synodical structures. The ultimate soul-forming institutions in a free society are frequently religious institutions. Traditional religion offers a direct challenge to the ethic of the age of fracture. Religious commitments command us to a mixture of responsibility, sympathy, lawfulness, and righteousness that align our wants with our duties. They, congregations, help form us to be free. And finally, from James Davison Hunter, who's a scholar at the University of Virginia, formation into a vision of human flourishing requires an environment that embodies continuity, historical memory, rituals marking seasons of life, intergenerational interdependence, and most important of all, common worship. From a, from a guy in the secular world, that's your congregation. The congregation, the local congregation, forget the synod, forget the seminaries. I mean, they have their role, but the local congregation is the place where it's at and the place where it can happen in, in these changed times. So how can you how can you sin and say it's a terrible time to be the church? It's a great time to be the church. You gotta believe it. So Dr. Meyer, uh, really quick, we'll, we'll give you a few uh, uh, you know practical questions. One, one that asks for a little bit more detail. Uh, first, could you share with us again the title of the book that you had mentioned? Uh, uh, the 600 page title or so. Paul and the Gift. Paul, Paul and, and the, the Gift. Gift by John Barclay, B-A-R-C-L-A-Y. He's a British scholar who we did have him at Concordia Seminary. Paul and the Gift. Excellent. Uh, another question came in. Uh, could you could you share the, the congregation in Texas that you said they had, they had a, a, an idea that connected where four of them didn't? Uh, we have uh, uh, Pam Wrightson just asked, could you share with us what, what was the idea that connected for their community? Well, the, my, my classmate, Steve Wagner, was a pastor at Prince of Peace, Carrollton. And, and he just said that, you know, they tried lots of things. And he was really depressed when he first landed there as a graduate out of the seminary. Um, but th th there, there were various things. But he said, on average, four out of five things they tried failed. I mean, the great thing about failure is who knows it? Because you failed. <laughs> you know? yeah. Totally. And then, and then uh, uh, Dr. Meyer, one, one last point. Uh, Dawn had asked uh, to circle back on, on individualism. Uh, she writes, uh, don't individuals rely on themselves or does individualism have a different meaning these days? Uh, do, pe do these people look not to their church or to their family and church for guidance? No, so, no, they don't. No, they don't. Yeah. And the great book here, and this is readable of, of, of all the, the books that I quoted, Here's one, one that I would, I would say is a great, great one to get. 
It's by Heather Schote Davis. She's an LCMS uh, member in California, Heather Schote Davis. And it's man turned in on himself. It's basically the first commandment issue that we've got. Uh, and, and she documents depression, chaos, obesity, all these things are, are symptoms of, of, of our hyper individualism. Okay. Uh, Dr. Morris, thank you so much. I, I know that, boy, we could, we could definitely go a lot further, a lot more in depth. Uh, the, uh, the audience responses have been positive. They're, they're grateful that you're here. Uh, at this point, though, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it to President Buss and, and let him wrap up this quick hour. Can I say, can I say something uh, uh, real quick? Uh, give Alan a chance to wake up here. I, I love you, Alan. Um, <laughs> one of the things we've discovered at the seminary where I'm still involved is that we can take presentations like this into circuits, into congregations, whereas in the past you had to get in the car or get on a plane. Now we can do it from the basement. And so I know that a lot of our professors and I too are willing as, as our own schedules permit to go into circuits and congregations with, with the various presentations that we've, we've developed. Thank you. Thanks again to the staff for organizing this. Dr. Maher, you were great and uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the word that's in the book, but the word of God that lives in us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and that uh, we get to bear witness to each other that our, our congregations are important for what you are doing in the world as we bear witness to the Jesus who, who died and rose again and is still at work in this world and in our lives. We thank you for Dr. Meyer. Bless him in this new season of life. We pray for our seminaries. And we pray for the congregations that we are a part of, that we would be uplifting, that we would be encouraging. Thank you for the opportunity to be generous and uh, grant us your blessing, your Holy Spirit. And uh, may we have great confidence that we are people of faith and our faith is in the risen Lord. All this um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>